Hello and welcome to the ME Show. I'm Gary Burgess. Together with the ME Association, I hope this series will help shine a light on the work that's happening to truly understand ME and eventually find that breakthrough treatment we desperately want. This episode, I speak to Dr. Mark Guthridge, a medical researcher and somebody who's lived with ME since 2015. He lives and works in Australia, where, as you'll hear, there are so many similarities and the story of the understanding of ME among the wider community there. Mark now devotes much of his time to supporting ME research efforts and is about to begin a new project which he hopes could develop new diagnostic tests. Most of all, speaking to Mark left me in no doubt that we have a wonderful ally on the other side of the world. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Dr. Mark Guthridge, welcome to the ME Show. How are you today? Yeah, very well. Thanks, Gary. I'm glad to hear it. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. I, I'd seen your name crop up uh, in a few articles I'd read about uh, ME CFS in Australia, and, and I don't really know much more about you or indeed about how the illness is both treated and perceived there. So thank you for joining me from the, the other side of the world at uh, whatever hour of day it is. Uh, I, I guess, first of all, about you. All, all I know of you, Mark, is you are a medical researcher, but that covers a multitude of sins. So what is it you actually do? Yeah, so I've got a PhD and uh, up until uh, last year, I was running uh, a leukaemia research laboratory at Monash University here in Melbourne. And my main focus, I guess, of my research career has been looking at the causes of cancer and trying to identify therapeutic targets. And we... Uh, we had set up in the lab a, a trans, what we call the translational pipeline, where we would screen uh, drugs for their ability to kill leukemia cells. So this is a blood cancer, and try and uh, progress those drugs through a, a pipeline towards uh, clinical trials. And we we're fortunate to identify a number of drugs showing promise, and those have now progressed into phase one clinical trials. But I guess in terms of um, MECFS, uh, some of those drugs we identified were able to uh, modulate or change the metabolism of cancer cells. And as we'll probably come to in a second, one of the key features of uh, MECFS as a disease is that patients have a metabolic impairment. That is, their cells are not really able to generate energy uh, to fuel muscle movement, digestion, and thought processes. Um, but I guess uh, in terms of myself, my connection to MECFS uh, started back in 2015 when I came down with uh, mononucleosis, or here in Australia it's called uh, glandular fever. And I was very, very ill, so I was basically bed-bound for a couple of months. And the doctor's did the test and they, they confirmed that I had the EBV virus, which causes this illness. And um, But I just wasn't recovering. So a month went by, two months went by, and I wasn't getting better. And the doctors were saying, well, sometimes it takes longer. And <laughs> they said, you are a little bit older than the normal person <laughs> that gets glandular fever. Um, so maybe it's going to take you a little bit longer. And, and 
meanwhile, I, I had a lab to run, a research lab with grants and papers to write, and so I, I was, wasn't able to do that at the time. And so I was desperate to get back to work and to nail what it, whatever this was wrong with me. But, um, but the blood tests were coming back normal after three or four months. And yet I felt very ill, very ill. So I couldn't generate the energy in my body that I needed to to drive to work and engage in meetings and discuss the science and do the shopping and pick up my child from school and, you know, all those things that people take for granted in normal life, I wasn't able to do. And the doctors were saying, well, be patient, be patient. But uh, I knew something was wrong and I, I, I was going, at that stage I was going from doctor to doctor to try and work out what the problem was. And, and most of them just say, look, you know, it's taking a bit longer to get over this glandular fever your tests are normal, you're fine, you know, maybe just get out and exercise a bit more, um, uh, but you'll be okay. Uh, but it wasn't happening. And I was very fortunate to to come across a doctor here in Melbourne who uh, was familiar with the diagnostic criteria of MECFS. So he diagnosed me with the, the International Canadian Consensus Criteria uh, for MECFS. And at that point, it was a, a tremendous relief, actually, to to get a diagnosis. And I know this is true for many patients that that uh, it's better to know what you've got uh, rather than going from doctor to doctor and and getting that suspicious look that you know maybe you're just um, anxious about your health, or maybe you're stressed or tired. And so um, that was really the starting point for trying to. Um, manage my condition and and trying to get treatment. And what was that point like in your life? You know, you, you don't sound to me like some kind of crazy, irrational man. My goodness, you're there trying to solve cancer. Uh, so suddenly when, when this lands in your lap, when suddenly your life is on hold, what's that like for you, Mark? Well, um, I guess I was, even in the early stages, I was very much in denial that, you know, because I'd always been tremendously fit. So I used to cycle every day, um, swim and jog, swim at least a couple of k's a week and jog maybe five to ten k's a week plus cycling every day. So I was very, very fit. And I thought, well, you know, I can get on top of this. You know, I can conquer this. Um, this is just some, there's a, it's a, just a simple hurdle in life and I've overcome many in, in my life, I, I, I consider. But, but it wasn't as simple as that and it wasn't as simple as just being determined or energetic or trying to overcome an obstacle this is this was a biochemical disease um, where there is not a, no one simple treatment or cure and so as a scientist what I did was I just went to the scientific literature to try and understand what what was going on and and there is a lot of research there um, on the metabolism of MECFS, the immune system defects, the hormonal aberrations, the inflammatory um, conditions that occur in patients. And, um, and I, I must admit, having studied blood diseases, leukaemia, for many, many years, I was completely unaware of what MECFS was, um, how it's diagnosed and what the, the abnormalities are. But there is a lot of literature there. And so that was the starting point, really, to try and understand what was going on in my body and, and that of the, you know, the many, many other patients out there. 
It's funny how many times uh, I'm, I'm hearing now stories, and some have appeared on this podcast, of, of people in the medical community only really, quote-unquote, getting it once they literally get it, once they themselves have ME. And it, it shouldn't take that, but my word, that really now helps you focus your, your own time and energy because you are, you are now working to help the rest of us. Well, I guess that's right. So while... I didn't know what the disease was. Um, I guess I'm not a medical doctor, um, but, you know, less than half of medical doctors in the UK, um, one study has, has found, know what the diagnostic criteria for MECFS is. Um, and yet it's not an uncommon disease. It's not a rare disease. So in Australia, there's um, between 200,000 and 240,000 people with this illness, so it's, it's four to five times more common than multiple sclerosis, 20 to 30 times more common than lupus, and yet um, it's known. It's not recognised by, um, by many GPs, and, 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 and fairly, I guess, they're not really trained to recognise it, so that's a problem. Um, there's just very uh, community and and uh, and and population-wide understanding of this disease, and of course, it is surrounded by a stigma that these patients, you know, they're lazy, they're malingering, it's a yuppie flu, it's just a bit of tiredness. Um, but and, and that hurts patients. That that really hurts patients when they hear that because they know they've got something which is which is a devastating, debilitating, and disabling. Um, and many of their jobs, um, they, they can't, they, they leave their families. Um, you know, it's a precarious situation for many patients. What's the situation in Australia when it comes to both sort of general public understanding, day-to-day GP and secondary healthcare understanding, and politi- uh, particularly political understanding and will to, to, to raise awareness and, and highlight the reality of ME? How, how would you characterise it right now? Are, are things improving? Well, I think um, we're, we're at a point where... Um, there's, it's, a, it's a critical juncture uh, in this disease in Australia. So our peak research funding body, the National Health and Medical Research Council, or NHMRC, has just assembled an MCFS advisory committee. And one of the purposes of this advisory committee is to establish a framework around which uh, the disease is diagnosed clinically as well as for research and to find um, uh, areas of research um, that require funding. And so, you know, the, the, the funding over the last nearly 20 years really has been abysmal in Australia, but that's, that's not uh, unusual internationally. So in the US, Canada, UK, where you guys are, uh, the funding has been very poor, at least for biomedical research, um, where the funding is really required. So... It, in Australia, there's been 1.63 million funded since the year 2000 for this illness, which accounts for only one project grant, one project grant. So that amounts to less than 50 cents per patient per year since the year 2000. So given the enormous health burden of this disease in Australia and, and in other countries, 
you know, that that really needs to be um, improved. And I think one of the the the, um, the hopes of um, patients this NHMRC advisory committee will uh, strongly recommend that uh, research funds are uh, triaged and, and separated out for MECFS research here in Australia. It's it's really interesting the parallels where we've got the uh, the the nice um, guidelines for ME treatment in the UK being reviewed. You've you've got this happening in Australia right now, and I understand it with 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 your own academic work. You're 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 moving on to a, a new project in in the coming weeks and months, and and you yourself will be focusing much more on ME. Yes, I, what I hope to do in the next uh, year or two is use some of the techniques and approaches we've been using in the lab for many years to understand what makes a cancer cell different to a normal cell, uh, to use those same techniques to work out what makes a, a cell from an MECFS patient different from a normal patient or a well patient. And, uh, and so I think um, that's where... Um, Hopefully, we can use some some interesting approaches, and so um, we, we measure. We're able to measure the metabolic activity of cells uh, from from patients, and measure the aerobic and anaerobic activity in these cells. And what I think is potentially exciting is that some of the screens we performed, um, some of the drugs that we screened, actually activated the metabolism in some of the cancer cells. Now, at the time, we didn't care. We, we certainly didn't want to have a drug in a patient that would activate the activity, the metabolic activity of a cancer cell, but we may be able to repurpose some of these compounds um, to reactivate metabolic pathways uh, in MECFS patients where clearly there are some, some major impairments. Wow. It is entirely possible that uh, something you stumbled upon in a different course could now be repurposed for people with ME. Yeah, and look, you know, I'm, we're not the only ones to be looking at that sort of thing. So I don't. Some of your listeners may be aware that uh, just a week and a half ago there was an international symposium here on MECFS run by. Um, our major national advocacy agency here in Australia, Emerge. And at that meeting, um, there were a number of speakers who were looking at the metabolic defect in patient cells. And so Cara Thomas from from the UK, um, as a young student, a PhD student, I think she's a postdoc now, who had found some metabolic inflexibilities in the blood cells of MECFS patients. And so that's a really important finding because it, it paves the way to identifying new diagnostics because you can simply take the cells out of some of these patients and put them in the appropriate machine, measure their metabolic inflexibility, as you called it, and then work out whether that's a diagnostic for those patients and, and, and also use that as a screen tool for compounds that may reactivate the metabolism. Tell me a bit more about this event because I understand it, it, it wasn't just uh, you know the, the the scientists, the medics, the boffins getting together at this conference. Uh, this was also a chance for for GPs and patients to kind of understand each other's worlds as well. 
Yeah, so that, that's a really interesting point, Gary. So I've been involved in research for 25 years now, and I must say I've been to many, many cancer symposiums, conferences internationally and here in Australia, and I've never been to a conference where patients and researchers are sitting in the same room discussing the science and the clinical experience of having MECFS. And it, it was truly inspiring. I, 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 there was basically scientists who were passionate about progressing the field and they were working hand-in-hand hand with patients in terms of the strategies for securing research funding, devising the research priorities, uh, developing the research projects and providing, of course, um, very valuable tissue samples um, that are vital for this type of research. So it was a very um, – it was an amazing eye-opener for me. Um, and I, I guess I was thinking about that afterwards. So, so why is it that when I go to cancer conferences, it's all scientists talking about the disease almost um, – with, I wouldn't say disregard, but not really thinking about the patient behind the disease. So as a cancer biologist, I think about the genes involved, the pathways, the blood cells and so forth. But this was scientists discussing uh, with patients in the same room. And so it was, it was very inspiring. And I think part of the reason is that, number one, patients are desperate for scientists to be involved in the research there are currently no diagnostics, no treatments, and there's very little funding. And so both patients and researchers realise that if the field is going to progress, then there has to be a new model by which research occurs. And actually, it's, it was a lesson to me that it was, it was a wonderful approach um, in terms of understanding the disease from the patient's perspective and then getting input from patients about the types of projects that they would think would be important. So it was, it was a wonderful, wonderful symposium. And, you know, it, it will also give people hope because some of this research and, and some of this stuff, I mean, I, I read some of these papers, it's, it's so abstract. It's stuff that I do not understand. There are sentences I don't make sense of. But actually to be in the room and to be reminded there are good, real human beings trying to help, that gives hope. That's right. And, and what was a really nice session organised at this conference was a round table. So there was about 20 round tables in this symposium room and each table had a researcher or a clinician um, sitting on it and um, patients were invited to sit at a particular table and the researcher sat there and listened to the patient experience and then it was incumbent on the researcher to explain some of their research in a way that those patients understood. So to provide those laid summaries and, and to highlight the significance and the potential impact of that research. And every five or 10 minutes, the researcher would switch um, tables so that each patient had the opportunity to speak to at least three or four of the researchers. I thought it was just a wonderful uh, idea um, and it really it makes for the researcher, it, it, it creates a sense of urgency by which, you know, we really need to treat this disease. These patients are suffering. Um, and and, and an, the necessity of, of pushing forward this research, even despite the poor funding, at least to date, to find those sources of funding because there's a very real human 
Alzheimer's disease. What's it like in Australia when it comes to things like CBT and graded exercise therapy? These things crop up in, in sort of the, the, the national conversation from time to time in the UK, much to the huge frustration of people with ME. What's the situation like down under? Yeah, so in Australia, our um, GP um, uh, uh, society, the RACGP, I think you've got something very similar in the UK, um, their standard of care recommended by the RACGP is graded exercise therapy or GET and cognitive behavioural therapy uh, or, or CBT. And I guess those two therapies are born out of a long history um, in terms of MECFS, but not just MECFS, a lot of um, poorly understood and stigmatised diseases where um, the disease is thought to be, and, and MECFS has been branded as being due to excessive health anxiety, abnormal illness beliefs, um, exaggerated negative attitude to pain or catastrophizing, as it's called by psychiatrists, um, avoidance behaviour of physical activity, which is kinesophobia. It's another um, term used by psychiatrists to, to diagnose MECFS. Burnout or depression um, or just lack of sleep, even boredom has been, unfortunately, <laughs> has been described in the literature um, as causing MCFS. So um, the, there is that history around the disease, and, and I guess, thankfully, biomedical research is now turning that around, and it's showing that, that these patients don't have excessive health anxiety. The reason why they go from doctor to doctor, just as I did, wasn't because I had excessive health anxiety. is because I was sick and I needed a diagnosis. Um, it wasn't because I was um, depressed or burnt out. I work hard, but I wasn't burnt out. It's because I had an illness, a biomedical illness. And what the research is showing now is that um, that there are clearly um, a biomedical basis for this. And, and I think the tide is turning. Um, so in the US, the NIH, their peak body for research there, has said that, you know, while although there are psychological repercussions such as depression for MECFS, it's not primarily a psychological disease. The US Depart Department of Health and Human Services uh, Human Services said it's not a psychiatric condition that can be equated to with somatic symptom disorder or functional somatic syndromes. Um, the 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 um, the CDC in the US has, has rolled back the recommendations for GET and CBT now. So I think there has been a, a clear sea change um, driven by the biomedical research over the last five five years or so. And I think that's and, and some of the, the research really is showing that that the clinical experience described by these patients can be described scientifically by the metabolism of these patients, the immune system of these patients, the hormonal disruptions and the inflammatory um, mediators in these patients. So um, I, I'm, I'm very happy, I guess, by biomedical researcher. That's my, my um, bias in the field. But I think that's a, a tremendous step forward for patients.
I, I love the idea that someone might think I've got ME because I'm bored. Isn't it crazy? We'll we'll look back on this with absolute incredulity one day. So just just keep doing what you're doing, Mark. It, it makes a difference. How as as we wrap this up, how how optimistic, how hopeful, how positive are you? You you sound a generally optimistic person, but how optimistic are you that there'll be some kind of breakthrough in in the coming years? Look, I, I'm I'm very hopeful. I think um, you know the this conference that was just held in in melbourne here uh there was uh, uh researchers from sweden the netherlands the uk the us canada australia and there were some exciting findings there so um you know the open medicine foundation uh ron davis uh spoke at the meeting and many patients will be very familiar with his work and he's recently described this interesting um aspect of the red blood cells or the erythrocytes in MECFS patients. So they're less squishy than a normal person's uh, red blood cells. And so they can't force themselves through the capillaries in the same way as a healthy person. So in other words, that lack of squishiness uh, impairs their ability to provide oxygen to muscles and brain and many other tissues and so that those patients aren't able to generate the same energy um, uh, using that the, the molecule ATP as a, as a normal healthy person could. So that could be converted uh, potentially to a diagnostic in the next five years um, and there were other, other findings as well. So there was a, a talk by um, um, the name escapes me at the moment but he found that um, that by screening, this is using big data now, so the term used in the field, bioinformatics. So this is where you analyse the expression of thousands of genes in hundreds of pathways in, in many, many patients. And you look for patterns that distinguish a patient from a normal person. And, and then you... On top of that, superimposed on top of that, you look for drugs that could replicate those changes in patterns in the patients and the healthy individuals. And in his screens, he's found um, 92 um, FDA-approved drugs. So these are drugs already out in, in the, in the uh, already used clinically that could potentially change the gene networks in MECFS patients to restore at least partially their, their, their problems in generating energy. So I think that's very exciting. And even if one or two of those 92 turn out to be major hits and provide some improvement, I think that would be a fantastic outcome. I love your passion. I also love your ability to, to explain some of this in plain English. The, the use of the word squishy helps me understand tremendously. Uh, Mark, please continue to look after yourself, uh, but also continue to, to do your good work as well. And thank you so much for joining us on the ME show today. Well, look, uh, lovely to talk to you, to Gary, and, uh, and keep up the fantastic work. Dr. Mark Guthridge, and you'll find links to that Emerge Australia event that he mentioned in the show notes that accompany this podcast. And that's it for this series of The ME Show. I just wanted to end with a personal note from me. First of all, I want to thank the contributors who've given up their time to speak to me this series, from campaigners to researchers, uh, from frontline medics to those fighting our corner in Parliament. It's been my privilege to speak to them all. Thanks to 
to to the Emmy Association who support this podcast and use their power to promote it each week across their social media channels and through their brilliant website as well. But most of all, I want to thank you. Yes, you. Your generous feedback, your rating and reviewing in iTunes, the debates you've had in online forums after each episode. Yep, I do dip in and have a look, I promise you. And the way you've helped spread the word by sharing the ME show on Facebook and on Twitter and beyond. It means the world. Uh, Sitting here at home, making these shows is, is a strangely solitary experience. You'll never know the nerves I have when I click the upload button and send out a new episode to the world. So all your kind words really are truly appreciated. And I can tell you, the ME show will be back. Until then, though, take care of yourself, and I'll speak to you soon.